This is the Diocese of Brussels. Welcome to Portugal. Uh, well, I'm in Portugal, you probably aren't. Uh, we've got uh, another interview for you. Uh, I've been here at the OASIS Annual Conference, which is the uh, European Studies Association uh, in the UK. Uh, we've been uh, talking a lot about different things, a lot of Brexit. Uh, but one of the people I met up with was uh, Chris Huggins from the University of Suffolk, who is uh, a specialist on fisheries. Uh, Portugal is a good place to be talking about fish because that's where uh, an awful lot of it is consumed. So in this interview, uh, we're going to talk a bit about how common fisheries policy works, fisheries in general, how they operate, uh, the kind of attitude towards Brexit, the different kind of possibilities and uh, issues involved. Uh, so do sit back and enjoy this one. There are some links uh, mentioned at the end of the podcast, um, and you can find out more about the project that uh, Chris has been doing with his colleagues. Here we go. Uh, so we're here at uh, the University of Lisbon uh, for the Oasis Conference. Uh, you've been talking about uh, Brexit and local government, but you've also been involved in a project uh, talking about the impact on fisheries policy, uh, and we're going to kind of explore that, but we'll see where the, the conversation yep. goes. And fisheries has been one of those issues that's been deeply symbolic in the debate. How, much, how do you see that relationship between the symbolism and the substance? Yeah, I think, so it's one of those really high profile things and I think the whole narrative about take back control fits really well with that. So take back control of our seas, have control over who comes into our territory um, or, or marine territory. So I think it, the fisheries issue fit nicely with the dynamics of the Brexit debate. Um, but it does present one of these really odd situations where it's a relatively small part of the UK economic sector. So. 0.05% of GVA um, it accounts for fishing um, but it has dominated the debate and I think that it's because it fits in so nice with that narrative around you know, take back control, control from it and the EU's common fisheries policy has been one of those things that's been easy to pick a fight with if you like um, uh, you, you can say it's put people out of business, um, you can, can criticise it on environmental grounds um, it's been one of these sort of targets, if you like, for all the ills of European integration. Mm. So, I think, you know, that already kind of raises some important questions that, you know, if you're thinking about fishermen and, I guess, fisherwomen, as much as there are any yep. in the, the industry, how much is it, do you think, well, from their perspective, is it extrapolating that the, the fisheries policy has been so problematic that therefore the whole system is problematic. Is, is, do you see that kind of uh, extrapolation from the, the specifics, the general? Yeah, I th I, I, there's two ways to answer this question. One is to just go down the general line as generally fishermen um, are broadly Eurosceptic, they you know, they point a lot of fingers at the EU and that, that's down to all sorts of issues with the common fisheries policy, whether it's down to who gets quota to fish for what, whether it's uh, rules and regulations about how you can fish and you know, um, all the rest of it. And a more nuanced way of saying it would be actually it's much more complicated. There is no real consensus about whether the UK should leave the EU among fishermen. So 
Um, a survey was done um, that suggested 92% of fishermen wanted to leave the European Union, but that only represented one aspect of the fishing fleet. Um, a side that you don't normally hear about is the much smaller scale operations. These are operations that don't usually fish far out to sea. Um, they normally only catch shellfish species uh, which aren't subject to EU quotas. Um, they tend to be more directly managed by what national government's doing. So uh, part of the debate on fisheries has been centred around what you know the high seas trawlers um, and, and sort of all the big fishing vessels and the big enterprises want to get out of it and what you've seen in the debate since is a lot of the s smaller scale fleets um, saying actually we're, we, we've got a stake in this uh, debate as well so yeah there's two ways of looking at it yeah. I guess so uh, how, how influential are operators in the debates, is it that do they do they set the terms, or or is it that there are other actors like regulators, politicians who are able to to steer the ship, for want of a better metaphor? <laughs> There's um, if you're part of the big fishing associations, you're really well resourced. So you have lobbyists who are based in Westminster. Um, or at, maybe they're not based in Westminster, but they've got the contacts um, in, uh, among politicians. Um, they've got links to the parliamentary committee. So you see the big fishing associations like the National Fishermen's Federation, National, Fe National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations, and the Scottish Fishermen's Federation. These are well-resourced outfits, and they represent broadly um, the larger-scale businesses. Um, and as a result, they've sort of been able to dictate the terms in that way. So the Scottish Fishermen's Federation has this phrase, a sea of opportunity. And you see that language getting picked up by politicians who've been listening to what this very resourced outfit has been saying and also using their language. So if you're resourced enough to get into the debate, then actually you can have quite a lot of impact. And I think, you know, going back to the point I said earlier, small economic sector but if you look at the media coverage it's got in some respects if you look at how it's dictated some politicians particularly in the Scottish constituencies where it's perceived to be you know a really important issue um, they've had a lot of influence in the debate again though if you look at the smaller scale fleet as well that's where more complex issues arise so many of the smaller scale fleets perhaps were ambivalent about Brexit, um, worried about potential non-tariff barriers that would prevent a live export going, yes. say, over to France where the market is, but also see Brexit as an opportunity to reorient the way fishing is divided up across the country, for example. So maybe there is a more opportunity for these smaller scale businesses to get some benefit if we rethink the whole approach to sharing out fishing. Um, but again, because the debate's being driven by the larger fleets, you start to see a lot of dissatisfaction among the smaller scale businesses that their voices aren't getting heard. And one of the problems, I think, is that the fishing industry doesn't necessarily always cooperate with each other, or the different parts of it don't cooperate with each other well. So we looked at different countries and how, how they set up governing fisheries, and one of the things, for example, we found in Norway is that actually different parts of the fleet 
communicate with each other in a much more effective way mm. and that allows them to have a much more constructive dialogue with the government don't necessarily always agree but nevertheless um, there's a perception that the government's only pursuing one part of the fleet at the moment. I don't know how <laughs> fisheries are organised. <laughs> you talked about fishermen's associations so they're just responsible for the catching? Yeah. For land and catch? You know, what, what are the different elements of the, the industry? Is it about catching fish, processing fish, yeah, so selling fish? So this is the other thing as well. Most of the debate is centred around the catching fish out at sea, and, and most of that tends to focus on the sort of bigger enterprises, as I said. It, you know, the, the boats that catch stuff, that's subject to EU quota. So you've got the smaller vessels as well, but yeah, fish processing is an important part of this industry. Um, in, in fact, it employs more people. If you take fisheries and fish seafood processing as a whole, it's actually the bigger part of it, uh, makes more money. Um, and yeah, again, ability to import and export is vital to them. Um, but also migration is an important issue for them as well. Almost half of um, workers in seafood processing happen to be non-UK, EU or EEA nationals. Um, and as a result, they're worried about implications on will we have a workforce to process the fish. Yeah. Um, so there's that aspect as well. There's, there's another side of it, I guess, is the sort of more aquaculture side which often gets reported in with the rest of the statistics because it gets mixed together um, but, mo but mostly when we talk about fishing in the popular discourse we're mainly talking about the, the boats that go out to sea. And how does that, you know, is there a, a, any vertical integration between catch and processing? There's, there's an element of there's an element of linkage between these different things. So you know, the, the processors need fish to process. So someone has to go out and, and process the fish. Um, the, the processors need consumers to buy it, and so they need all the infrastructure related to that. But things aren't necessarily as easy as, as a British boat goes out in British waters, catches British fish for, for want of a better term, brings it back and, like, processes there but the way the supply chains work are much more complicated in reality so it might be you've got a vessel catching fish in say Norwegian waters it's then bringing them to the UK to be processed here which might then be exported after it's being processed um, to Europe for example to the rest of Europe. Yeah so I th this is one of the, the kind of the questions one has because one of the the things that I was, you know, kind of, uh, I learned about fisheries when I, occasions I've had to do teaching about it or talk about it is just that a lot of the quota that the UK has is actually run, as used by boats from other countries. So that it's, there's a quota for the UK territory. Yeah. And you, that can be sold to different people or so there's how a does of, it work there's a bit of bargaining that can sometimes go on so each each member state will get their allocation of quota which it can assign to their vessels so one issue is a vessel might be UK flagged it might carry UK flag but in reality it might not be owned 
in the UK. In, in fact, you know, one of the big things that came up in the referendum campaign was the fact that loads of British quota had just effectively been bought by other countries by the virtue of the fact they owned a British flag boat, except those boats would very rarely land in the UK. They wouldn't be crewed by UK fishermen. So you know, all the economic activity from UK quota wasn't coming into the UK. Okay. So that's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect, I guess, is there's a bit of horse trading that sometimes goes on um, among the member states um, and indeed among other uh, what you call coastal states, so Norway and the Faroe Islands, for example. So you might sort of have, once you've sort of agreed quota allocations, there might be a bit of political bargaining that goes on at those high levels saying, well, look, we want a bit more of this, can we have a bit of yours of that, for example. So something to remember in EU fisheries policy, it's often seen as, you know, the Commission rules a roost, it sets what everything that goes on. But like all things in EU politics, there's a political bargain going on at the end of this day. And so a lot of the decisions are made in the Fisheries Council. Um, that happens behind closed doors. It's seen as untransparent. And one of the issues is uh, this idea that certain countries might be selling out their fleets to other interests in order to gain bargains elsewhere, for example. Just on foreign-owned British-flagged vessels landing elsewhere, that partly goes also to markets for British fish. Yep. Air quotes. <laughs> British fish. Uh, that we know that the UK is not actually the most attractive market for yeah. the kind of fish that you get in the UK, that the kind of things that Brits eat are not necessarily things that you find in British waters and, and vice versa, and just yeah. generally not much fish is consumed in the UK compared to continental Europe. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's, there's a sort of basic you know, market economics aspect to all of this, which is there's only really four species of fish that get eaten in the UK, cod, haddock, tuna, salmon. The majority of the salmon's probably farmed, so it's not really caught wild. Yeah. Um, tuna is not. Tuna doesn't really <laughs> exist in UK waters, although climate change is Possibly potentially changing, changing that. Um, so you do hear reports of tuna getting sighted off Cornwall, for example. Uh, the one. The one tuna. Um, cod and haddock. Haddock's probably the only fish, at least in Scotland, I would say, where the majority of that's caught by UK vessels actually eaten in the UK. Most cod that's eaten probably comes from Norwegian vessels um, or it's imported as sort of frozen stuff. So unless you go to a really super high up market fish and chip shop, it's likely your local chippy is selling cheap frozen cod because part of the thing about British consumers is they like things to be cheap, not necessarily willing to pay for a high quality product on a day to day basis. So if you look at what is caught in UK waters, the majority of it is shellfish. Um, but there's simply not really a market for that in the UK. So the biggest catch of any species in England, I think, was cuttlefish a couple of years ago. But that's just not, it's not part of British tastes. And that's why the export markets are really important, because that is liked in places like France, Spain, for example. And these are countries that tend to buy... Um, these exports and also elsewhere around the world as well so Welsh whelks for example which happens to be one of their biggest catches um, are making great use of a preferential 
trade deal with South Korea at the moment. Oh, yeah, so in, can you put some figures on that? What what percentage of UK? I don't even know how to phrase it. UK catch gets sold to non-UK destinations. I don't have the figures off the top of my head. Okay. But gen- the general rule of thumb is we tend to import most of what we eat and we tend to export most of what we catch. Um, so this is sort of, you know, this is sort of ships passing in the night thing, so to speak. Um, and, and again, that's down to market tastes more than anything. And there's been all this thing saying, well, it doesn't matter because we've got this great seafood resource, so after Brexit we'll just be able to eat more fish and it'll be great, it'll be more cheaply available and stuff than... You know, they've been running Eat More British Fish campaigns since I was a kid, at least, um, and you haven't really seen a massive shift in no. tastes um, or what con- or consumer behaviour. So a lot of this is driven by what do consumers want in which particular setting. So that then comes back to a question that was there during the referendum, which you know you were talking about that uh, survey, which said 92% fishermen supported leaving the EU. What's the logic then of that position if you're, you might be gaining control or regaining control of your fisheries but you might be losing access to your markets? Yeah. I was the thinking simply these people still will want to eat our, our seafood uh, therefore they will make it will, it will just happen. Yeah. Is it, is, it, is it wishful thinking or is it more sophisticated than that? Or is I, it, I don't know. Perhaps there was a bit of wishful thinking because the same survey also indicated most of the respondents thought there wouldn't be any massive impact in terms of trade. So, so maybe part of this was, you know, actually it would just be fine. We can gain control of our fisheries and trade wouldn't be an issue. We already know that the government just wants to see a formal separation between legally what happens in fisheries negotiations and legally what happens in trade negotiations. And legally, you can separate the two. They are two independent, separate issues. But then that's fisheries regulation on catching and quotas, and then you could have trade on processed. Yeah. Um, or, or even trade in the unprocessed fish. Yeah. Um, it, most the tariffs are a lot higher on processed fish. Um, but the side of this is that you might legally be able to separate these things out, but politically, um, in a diplomatic situation, um, things are never that neat. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, the EU's already made clear that it, it sees this as part of a package deal. The whole withdrawal agreement, for example, is a, a package deal which does cover fisheries it, it does cover trading for example um, we also know while the government wants to pursue a separation in these things the fishing industry itself even though it says it wants to see a separation also says we want market access to be kept open while we get full control of what's going on so um, at some point you know these linkages between trading and fishing are being made internally within the UK as mm. well so, uh, lots of people have said, well, what will happen after Brexit? Will there be a radical change in how the UK approaches? And I think for the diplomatic reasons, you're not likely to see a radical shift. Um, simply because, you know, if, if, if you're wanting to send the message out that you are 
open to doing deals. Um, people are going to be looking at how you behave in one area mm. to see if you can be trusted in another. Um, so yeah. That then kind of takes me into the question of the entanglement of national, European and international yeah. regimes around fish. I mean, clearly, you know, we've talked about British fish, but clearly one of the problems of fish is that they, they're not very yeah. good at respecting any kind of boundary, yeah. uh, even if they're being farmed. Uh, what, what is the international set of commitments and obligations? Like, you, know, in, if you, you know, how does that work? Yeah. So the UK um, is a signatory of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nature of the UK's geography means many of the fish species in the area are, as you said, effectively shared. So, you know, fish, there's not a massive line in the sea. Um, UNCLOS puts um, commitments on its signatories to effectively manage those sources sustainably. And, you know, where they do cross borders, you've got to take that into account. Um, so, a lot of people saying, you know, uh, Brexit means we can go alone in fisheries, we can strike our own independent path. Well, in a decision-making capacity, perhaps, but the reality is um, that Brexit means you'll probably be cooperating more on the international level um, because the European Commission won't be coordinating this anymore. Now you'll be cooperating directly with the rest of the EU, you'll be cooperating with Norway, you'll be cooperating with the Faroe Islands, Iceland, all the rest of it. So there is an international regime in fisheries that puts obligations to manage stocks sustainably. Another of the sort of elements within that is if you have surplus fish stocks which you cannot catch yourself, you are um, obligated to allow neighbouring vessels to come in and and help do it. Um, So there's all these, there is an international regime that's outside of the EU that the UK will still be within um, and that's one aspect I guess as well. So being out of the common fisheries policy doesn't suddenly mean it's a free-for-all and anyone with a dinghy can go and do what they like. No, essentially not. The UK will still have to have some form of fisheries policy in place. It will still have to cooperate with neighbouring, you know, neighbouring countries like Norway or the rest of the EU um, in order to manage that in a sustainable way. And and this is actually something that's broadly, I think, broadly agreed with the industry as well. Because if you don't fish sustainably, you, your business is gone. It, yes. it it doesn't work like that. And where are we in terms of that sustainability at the moment? I mean, you know, we're used to hearing lots of issues about fish stocks, about biological constraints. I mean, how healthy is the, the sea in as general or as specific services as you like? Yeah. I mean, you know, because that was, you know, was always one of the criticisms of yeah. CFP was that it, it wasn't good for, for sustainability yeah. issues. And has that changed? And yeah, and in particular areas like the Mediterranean, it's, it's still pretty bad. It's in the sort of... North Sea and you know Northeast Atlantic. I guess it's it's better than it was, but you know we you saw news stories relatively recently about again there's been a collapse in the cod stock, um, and you know efforts to try and restore that. So we're essentially talking about wild marine resources, which we effectively go out to hunt. I guess would be another word for it. Um, that operates in a wider ecosystem, which is 
fragile like any sort of ecosystem is. So, you know, the, the UK still has to cooperate internationally on these things. It will still have to manage that ecosystem. And other countries have a stake, because of the nature of shared stocks, other countries have a stake in how the UK manages its waters. Does the UK have the infrastructure to pursue that management, centrally, locally? So this is one of the big things we've been looking at in our project. Um, it depends where you are within the UK. Um, so fisheries policy is a devolved issue, um, which means DEFRA and its agency, the Marine Management Organisation, handles things in England, but in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, it's up to those respective administrations to handle it. So Marine Scotland, Scotland is where most fishing activities happen, it's pretty well resourced, um, but one of the big issues following Brexit that's come to light is the UK doesn't really have the capacity to enforce fisheries regulations in its area. So you could, you know, you could turn around and say we're going to close off UK waters to foreign vessels, but the UK doesn't yet hasn't yet built up the capacity to police that. So what, what does that mean, enforcement? Is it? I don't want to say gunboats. Gunboat. Is it gunboat? Yeah. Is it patrol vessels? It's, we're talking patrol vessels, and in the case of England, the Royal Navy acts as as the sort of um, it's, it's effectively contracted to do fisheries enforcement. So that's one of their roles um, within UK uh, waters. So yeah, we're effectively talking boats out at sea, and also people in ports. We're talking people at ports. Um, one of the requirements in the No Deal Brexit, for example, will be you need to get vets to sign off on the health of what you've caught. Um, they are Dead. few and far between. Okay. Dead. Dead. Um, but, but yeah, there's all these things. You need customs agents if you're exporting to get things abroad. So not only are we talking about what goes out to sea, there's a lack of capacity on land as well. And if you look at the numbers DEFRA, for example, has been putting in, they've invested an awful lot in staff. It's one of the government departments that's recruited the most because of its policy areas it's had to. But these are... You know, it takes time to learn the specificities of a particular profile or a particular job. Mm. Um, marine management organisation is pretty well resourced, but again, it will need new staff to take on those capacities that have currently been dealt with at the EU level and will have to come to the UK. So one of the things missing at the moment is the UK hasn't got a new fisheries policy. It doesn't quite know what it, know wants, what to it wants to do. We can make all these noises about taking back control, but what does that look like in practice? We've got some high-level principles out there, but no um, substance. Yeah. And the other thing that's missing is the lack of a legal framework. The UK needs a fisheries bill in order to give it the legal authority to enforce its own exclusive economic zone. That's been stuck in the parliamentary process and nothing's happened with it since December. So, you know, and nothing looks like it will be happening in the immediate Exactly. And so period. one potential issue is that if that doesn't get through somehow or if something in that guise doesn't get through, the UK doesn't actually have the legal capacity to, you know, enforce its own policy. So this is one of the bills that needed to go alongside yeah. the withdrawal agreement uh, bill in order to give effect yeah. to that area. So, yeah, I think it's probably worth reminding listeners that 
fisheries along with agriculture is one of the most centralised. Effectively, member states are local operating arms of a European uh, system. Yeah, up, up to a certain point. So, so the UK still has a fair bit of sway over how it chooses to implement um, what comes from uh, the EU. And, and a lot of the case with a lot of inshore fisheries, there's actually a lot of scope to do to, to manage how you want. So one of the other things is you get a lot of variation within the UK because different devolved administrations have chosen to pursue or organise things in a, in a slightly different way. Mm. So, yeah. But it, it lacks a legal capacity at the moment to... It's not necessarily just, let's roll it all over from the EU. You still need a separate legal act Framework. to put this into process. Okay. What are the prospects? You know, it's my, my way of saying what's going to happen. You know, do, do you see that the, the different parts have enough common ground that they can work a way through this? Or do you see some very different sides in the debate that, that are not easily compatible? I think the big dividing line in the debate, at least among the catching sector itself, is are you fishing for EU quota species or are you fishing for non-quota species? Because that essentially comes down to if you're fishing for a quota species, the potential gains from Brexit are enormous. UK can take control of its quota share more actively, um, it can choose how to share it up. Um, if you're fishing non-quota species, we're generally talking shellfish here, um, you export that and the trade issue becomes really important for you. Um, so there's a need for those two sides to cooperate if you're to find any way through. I think a second dividing line, if you like, is between um, the bigger, more commercial enterprises and the more smaller scale operations. Um, the bigger commercial enterprises have the, um, I was going to say backstop, but that would be the wrong word. Um, <laughs> fallback. They have the fallback, if you like, or they have the capacity to, to weather a storm, to use another awful pun. Um, that's not really possible if you're a really small enterprise struggling to make some money. So one of the discussions after the referendum was, could we use Brexit as an opportunity to have a more fair allocation of quota between different parts of the fleet. That was always within the UK's gift to do. UK could have chosen to have done that within the Any EU. Point, yeah. But Brexit, arguably an opportunity to rethink this. If we're going to rethink fisheries, we could do this. It looks like things will stay as they are, um, which has disappointed some within the fishing um, community. Um, government's white paper says we'll keep the current allocations as they are and we'll only give extra quota to the smaller vessels um, or we, we will only do that if we get that as a result of our negotiations with our neighbouring coastal states. So there's a bit of an if in there. Will you actually get more quota out of this or not? I suppose that leads me to a final question that fisheries policy has had a really poor reputation, not just in the UK, but in other member states as well. Thinking about the possibilities that are there for a UK fisheries policy, is there an obviously better way of running fisheries? So I'm guessing I'm asking you to make an evaluation of whether you think the criticism of 
CFP is justified in part or in whole and whether you know it's easy to say this is a bad way of doing it but it may be that I don't know the situation yeah requires an uncomfortable trade-off at some point whatever you do CFPs always had a bad reputation uh, depend it always depends who you are and who you're speaking for as to what you want to criticize about it so you can criticize it because it gives unfair allocations to communities you could criticize it because it fails environmentally I a lot of efforts being put into making the CFP more sustainable. Mm. So there have been sort of gradual improvements over time. And, and you know, the, the state of the seas, particularly around the UK, are in a much better state than they used to be. So yeah, from that sort of measure, you could say things are better. But of course, there's always a better way to do it. One of the big sort of criticisms you get about the CFP now is around transparency. So that, that political bargaining I was talking about, that happens behind closed doors. You don't really know who's arguing for what. And the scientific advice always comes out and says you should count X amount. And often what you get are stuff coming out of the meeting. And they're always a bit above what the scientific amount says because obviously there's been some sort of bargaining going on. Yeah. So transparency is one of these things that could be improved. The question as to whether it would be in a post-Brexit UK setting remains to be answered. Okay, I think it's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> With that, uh, thank you very much. You, you talked about your project. Is there somewhere people can go, a website, to find out more? Yeah, we've collated a series of our blog posts on the UK and a Changing Europe website. So that's at ukandeu.ac.uk. So we have a number of blog posts there. Our latest one is on the implications of no deal for fisheries policy, which seems to be a big topical issue at the moment. Um, we've also got a report out on there where we talked about um, what the UK could learn, best practices from Norway, Iceland and the Faroe Islands, who are not EU member states, but and pursue their own fisheries policy. Thank you very much for that, Chris, and uh, well, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.